Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There are a number of tech darlings expected to have initial public offerings, including Airbnb uh, and Casper, uh, among others. But the real question is, why even go public when the private market is becoming more and robust, both on the uh, initial financing side of things as well as the trading side? Joining us now, Kelly Rodriguez, Chief Executive Officer of Forge, uh, which helps facilitate uh, some of that trading and activity uh, in private markets before companies go public or for companies who may never go public. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for being here with us in our interactive broker studios. Can we just get started in why a company would want to go public at this point, given what you're seeing in private markets? I think, I think at this point, with all of the access to liquidity that you see for a private company, the reason to go is that you've matured to the point that you want to let a retail investor around the world get access to your stock. But from the standpoint of just access to liquidity in general, there isn't a reason. So what we saw in 2019, we entered 2019 as, boy, a lot of anticipation about a lot of big unicorn deals coming public, a opportunity for investors to invest in really cool, transformative companies like Uber, like Lyft, like WeWork. It didn't work out well for the in public investors in 2019. What do you think happened for some of those big marquee deals that just didn't trade well in the public markets? A couple of things. The data that we have showed that Historically, if you were going to come into an IPO as an investor, 2019 was a year that marked you should have gotten in six to 18 months before. And if you look at where these deals priced in 2019, um, we could see from the private market demand, the bid ask, uh, that they're probably going to be pretty flat. I also think there was a, there's a path to profitability question that's now central to all of these unicorns. It sort of raises a key point, right? Has the dynamism in the U.S. equity market moved from public to private? And and that's sort of uh, implicit in what you're saying. Basically, the idea being the real gains are to be had before the vast majority of people can get access to these companies. Is that changing? Is there better access? Yeah, I think this this is what we're at Forge all about. And I think what we're trying to do is address the regulatory issues and the access issues for people to participate in the private markets. Because look, this has been an asset class that's been performing for 20 years. It's just most people can't get into it. Uh, and so that is shifting. All right, so of the 400 plus unicorns out there, roughly, uh, that are still in the private markets, if I wanted, I mean, how many of those companies can I, in theory, buy into in, in, as yeah, private? Yes, in theory, you can get into all of them. R right now, uh, our, our data suggests that 90% uh, of them are investable today. Okay, so I, but I come to you or I go through, I mean, how, do, how, do, how would I actually do that? Do I have to be an institutional investor? Can I... Can any retail investor do this? This is really the emergence of the private markets at a, at a broad level in the world. This is what Forge serves. We're there to help companies get access to that liquidity and help investors get access to those companies. So that's our central purpose. Outside of us, you'd have to go through a venture capital firm, become an LP, or find a way to directly contact the company. That's tough. And actually, when some of these IPOs didn't do so hot last year, one thing that was notable was you dig under the hood of a lot of mutual funds and you actually yep. find that mutual funds uh, own a lot of those shares, particularly in the later rounds of financing. But it does raise a question, uh, Kelly, the idea here that 
private markets are becoming as liquid as public markets. They're becoming uh, sort of dominated by companies of similar size to what you can find in public markets. What is the difference at this point between private and public equity markets? The most significant difference that we see is the way a company operates when they're private. They continue to invest and not have a quarter over quarter mentality. There's a strategic reason why that's valuable. And it's, there's a reason why these companies are staying private for 12, 13, 14 years to get market dominance before they actually go out and price and start operating under that quarter over quarter basis. So Kelly, another interesting development in the equity capital markets in 2019, at least to me, was direct public listings. Could you kind of help us understand what those are and are we going to see more of them? Yeah, I think it's a huge trend. Um, the New York Stock Exchange, is, as you have reported, is currently pushing to allow companies to raise capital on these direct listings. We think they're amazingly efficient um, and they really allow investors to come into deals um, uh, on a market-based pricing basis, meaning there isn't a cover price. They're really, in the two that have been out there, we've done significant business uh, around both Slack and Spotify. And you saw investors start to come in 60, 90, 120 days before and ride it through. For the company itself, um, it allows them to raise money um, not through this small group of investors who've been brought by an investment bank, but really to provide access broadly. The, the one concern that people have, or one of the main concerns, is that there is severe misvaluation going on in private markets, and WeWork is sort of heralded as the example of that. Do you think that that is accurate? I think it's becoming um, more, uh, coming out from we, WeWork, I think the focus of valuations, really that's the theme of how 2019 ended. And so I'd say that there have been uh, a lot of valuation news in 2019, really on a couple of the big investors, SoftBank being one. I think when you see a broader group of people coming into these companies, you're going to see pricing settle down. Kelly Rodriguez, thanks so much for joining us. Kelly Rodriguez is the Chief Executive Thank Officer you. of Forge, based in San Francisco, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Really fascinating part of the equity capital markets in 2019, you know, were some of those uh, big unicorn deals that did not trade well, and maybe how that changed how investors are looking at some of these companies. I think the key debate post-crisis has been the evolution of private markets yep. and how that has become increasingly dominant for a source of funding for companies of all sizes, not just the very smallest ones. And it really raises a question of some of the flaws in public markets yep. uh, and where private markets are, are sort of benefiting uh, that public markets need to need to take on. Yeah, and we're seeing, uh, you know, as we saw with Uber and Lyft, uh, companies staying private longer because there is so much capital. We know that consumers have really been the backbone of economic growth in the United States. And we got some data today that showed that the uh, consumer is still doing well. We got consumer retail sales today came in pretty strong for the month of December, indicating once again that the consumer continues to spend. To help us break down what's going on in all things retail, we welcome our good friend, uh, Bert Flickinger, Managing Director, Strategic Resort. Uh, resource group joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker uh, Studio. Bert, thanks so much for joining us. We did get those retail sales numbers today. What kind of stood out for you? 
Well, what, what really stood out, and, and, and Lisa and Tom talked about it so, so well at the open, is that auto sales downshifted a little bit, and we're seeing the auto manufacturers charge real price premiums and actually making smaller cars. So the consumers uh, won't pay more for less. And at the same time, on the Bloomberg terminal, you look at auto loans and auto credit is at an all-time high. So with consumers spending less on auto, uh, they're, spe- they're spending more in restaurants and spending more on the rest of retail with um, importantly what Lisa pointed out earlier not on luxury well so here's what I'm here's what I'm struggling to understand it's consumers are spending more on retail and clothes and stuff like that and then in Kohl's JCPenney even Target disappointed uh, the holiday forecasts how do we square those two things Lisa, this is a really important insight you're bringing up, and and the real idiosyncrasy institutionally is how can the Bonton Group of six different department stores to Barney's New York liquidate, and these uh, retailers you're referencing aren't targeting those lost shoppers who are loyal to uh, the other retailers from Herbergers to Carson's to Barney's and shift them over to the stores. The other thing we're seeing is the vendors are actually doing in some of the stores that some of the brand vendors are trying to get the shoppers to buy direct online from the brand instead of going to the store. So they're under allocating the inventory to the stores and the stores are cutting working capital and don't don't have enough inventory in the stores themselves. How do you get the Bonton customer, the Barney's customer, two very different customers meanwhile, but how do you attract them? So say say with uh, Shields in, in Grand Forks, uh, North Dakota, would, uh, part of our re- retail route, is um, go to the Shields customers and cross-merchandise uh, for the customer list for the Herbergers who are on the other side of the uh, same shopping center. And then there's so many uh, good uh, means through uh, Amazon, uh analytics, uh, Facebook analytics, SurveyMonkey, to find where shoppers shopped and then offer them uh, uh, discounts and coupons to convert them and all generations of their family uh, from uh, babies uh, to pets, pet products uh, to stuff for seniors. Just, Bert, I wonder if you could just clarify for me, because I, I thought I had a handle on holiday sales that they were up 3 4% pretty good. But then again, as Lisa was mentioning, we've had some retailers post some of the holiday numbers that don't necessarily align with that. So was it, is it clear, is it a game of winners and losers? It's not all retailers are lifting? It's, it's as you referenced, Paul, it's, it's winners and losers. It's also leaders that in many of these retailers, you, you have a, a male monarchy of people who are MBAs and came from hedge funds that didn't come up from the shop floor. So they're not promoting the best and the brightest women. And some of those uh, retailers are, are really struggling from having older uh, Caucasian guys that spend more time with the Wall Street analysts than they spend with their people in their own stores. So you can blame... Uh- uh, issues with with a lack of diversity in the C-suite or, or, or what have you. I think that the sort of question that I have is there is this fundamental shift from the brick and mortar to online. And how much do you invest in the experience of going into brick and mortar versus invest in your online outfits to compete with Amazon? Lisa, the experience uh, you're referencing is essential. So there's a lost magic of merchandising that Frozen 2 was the biggest event over the holidays. 
for children, uh, for parents, for grandparents, and no no retailer really tied in to Frozen 2. So it was a whole merchandising opportunity, and uh, Target's uh, kvetching like crazy. The toy sales were flat. Well, Amazon completely eclipsed Target and everybody else on toys because Amazon was the best in merchandising Frozen toys. And the other toys and the department stores and the discount stores lost that magic of merchandising of Disney-themed products and other events. And uh, to Paul's point, just just merchandising the entire store instead of selling out the window at Bloomingdale's across the street to LVMH, which is like a Maginot line fixed fortification, the window never changes, and selling all the prime real estate in the stores to the vendors who don't change the assortments and don't make it exciting and don't have themes to get shoppers out of the home, out of the apartment, out of the office to stop at the stores to shop because there's uh, no excitement and no magic merchandising in retail. We've talked about a theme, I guess, as we think about the Amazon effect on retail of the U.S. still being overstored. Give us your your perception of kind of that issue. How much more does the footprint need to shrink, you think? Paul, you're calling out a crisis that's really underreported other than Bloomberg as we shrink from 400% overstored to 200% overstored. So all these real estate property taxes and sales taxes that fund uh, the educational systems for public schools across the country, that whole tax base is going to be wiped out. 200,000 workers wiped out in the last two years, 70% of whom are women. And uh, as Lisa always referenced, is so well. The underfunded pension plans and all these retailers that the employers have to fully fund, that's at risk as we shrink from 400% to 200% overstored. Bert Flickinger, thank you. Thank you, Lisa. As always, for your perspective. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director for Strategic Resource Group, uh, giving us some really important uh, color into the retail sales. They came out stronger than expected, particularly, as Bert was mentioning, if you strip out autos, for example, uh, the estimate was an increase of 0.5% month over month, and it was 0.7% once you strip out uh, autos, and and it was similarly a, a beat when you strip out autos and gas. on the impeachment process we had some news out today the GAO says that the White House broke the law in aid delay uh, so that news is out we will have more on that also Lev Parnasy indicted associate of Trump's personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani accused Trump of lying in an interview with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow last night this is the first TV interview since the Ukraine story broke let's listen in President Trump knew exactly what was going on uh, he was aware of all of my movements uh, he, I wouldn't do anything without the consent of Rudy Giuliani or the president. In terms of the president and what he has said about you, um, he said about you and Mr. Fruman, Igor Fruman, I don't know those gentlemen, I don't know about them, I don't know what they do. You're saying that was not a true statement from the president. He lied. That was uh, Lev Parnas, indicted associate of Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, on with uh, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow last night. To dig into this developing story, welcome Clint Watts, distinguished research fellow of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University, joining us uh, on the phone. Clint, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start with Lev Parnas. Very damning uh, commentary last night. Is he a credible witness in your uh, mind? 
He is in certain contexts. The context where he is undertaking actions, when he's moving from place to place, when he's in Ukraine, when he's talking to Rudy Giuliani, absolutely, he's a first-person witness. He's really one of the only first-person witnesses who's been involved in a lot of the actions that if you rewind all the way to that whistleblower complaint, uh, he's at the center of the storm of what was actually going on. Where it gets a little... I think somewhat dicey is when he starts talking or referencing very high-level officials across uh, the Trump administration. How does he know those things? And he says, I, it, it almost seems that he's assuming this or he's assuming that. For example, Attorney General Barr, the way he referenced the Attorney General, uh, that he was part of the team or, or knew, it seems like he wasn't a first-person witness to that. He was just sort of relaying his in-person, you know, his interpretation of the events. And so I I think the further you get away from Rudy Giuliani and what he, and what Parnas was actually doing, maybe the less credibility there is, or he's implying or inferring things that he doesn't have, you know, direct actual witness uh, information to. Yeah. So there's that side of it. Uh, and then to this morning coming out, uh, the Government Accountability Office, which is a nonpartisan uh, part that takes a look at governmental actions, say that says that said that the uh, White House Budget Office violated federal law by withholding about $214 million appropriated by Congress to the Defense Department for security aid to Ukraine. I'm just wondering right now, all of this that's been going on in Washington, D.C. has been treated like a sideshow by markets. They have not been paying attention. It's also been treated like a sideshow uh, by a significant portion of the population. At what point does it cross through, if ever, uh, from your perspective? I'm shocked that it hasn't, mostly from the perspective of Congress. What Congress is saying is uh, strip out, you know, how you feel about the president, um, strip out. Uh, how you feel about members of Congress, it, it, the the idea of the Constitution, and, that, and that's clearly, you know, what I think we should be worried about long run is that Congress has oversight. They're the 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 folks that establish the budget, uh, the executive branch, the president, the person that executes, you know, those uh, uh, those parameters of that budget and defends the law. And what you're seeing is the Senate in this case clearly not having, you know, its authority uh, undertaken as the, the administer of the budget by the executive branch. And why would they not want to look into that just from a balance of powers? It really shows how politics has really shaped this entire uh, process around impeachment to where we should be asking, I think, as a nation, when Congress makes a law, when Congress appropriates funds, is it being followed through with according to the law? And the answer is no. It's It's very clear. And I think that's what the announcement from the uh, budget office, when you look at what they were doing, today's announcement is super critical. We're basically saying that the president can do whatever he wants with the nation's money, and it doesn't matter what the laws say. And I think that is a a damning thing for democracy. Imagine how this plays out one or two administrations from now, where presidents see this, they take power, and they say, you know what, I'm going to use all levers of financial influence uh, to help my own political campaign or my own personal feelings about any country. That's definitely not how we want our government to run. Okay, so just to follow up on that, Clint, how do you think the new revelations by Lev Parnas, as well as the GAO finding today, how do you think that will, what it will mean for the impeachment trial? I, I, I sadly think it, don't, it won't mean much. I, it just seems that we're not going to have a, a real trial where evidence is put forward. Maybe you will see some Republican senators. We've already seen some notions that they would like to see witnesses uh, come forward. 
Um, maybe it will change that uh, in the sense that there will be enough Republicans that will push to see witnesses come forward. But then if you only have Parnas come, uh, I'm not sure it will have much of an impact. I think the key person in all of this, to be honest, is John Bolton. I mean, he is a witness who was trying to, it seems, to pursue foreign policy in, a, in an appropriate way, led by the government, not a uh, personal capacity of Rudy Giuliani as the president's lawyer. Uh, he seems to understand both the budget process. He's a longtime hand in the U.S. government. Uh, I, I also see him as somebody who is similar to Jeff Sessions, which is not going to violate the law and may have strong personal feelings and convictions about what they want to see the United States pursue, but won't really break out of the norms uh, in this case. Yeah. And I, I think that's what is if there's any witness that I think is important is this. I think it's John Bolton. And you saw that in the testimony of Fiona Hill during the House uh, hearing. Clint Watts, thank you so much for being with us. Clint Watts is a distinguished research fellow for the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University, and author of a book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. lucky to have with us today, the Director of Research at the World Gold Council, uh, Juan Carlos Artigas, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. It's really interesting to me to see how many pro-gold calls we have gotten recently, including from a top executive uh, from Bridgewater Associates saying that gold is headed to $2,000 an ounce from 1550 currently. What are the main drivers of that? Yeah, and thank you so much for having me, by the way. And and what is interesting is that um, there are not only the asset managers. When you talk to investors, they are. Uh, we have seen more and more awareness and and willingness to to consider gold. So, what is behind this move? If you look in particular at 2019, and you will see something like, uh, similar uh, progressing into 2020. I would highlight um, basically uh, three things. Number one, market risk and uncertainty are high. Yes, the stock market is going up, and and you have. Have, you know some positive developments uh, in the global economy, but not everything is is perfect. And actually, some of those high valuations in the stock market are worrying uh, investors. So that's that's one geopolitical risk across the world is uh, tensions, so on and so forth. That's number one. The second part, and it's somewhat related, is that uh, interest rates have fallen. Um, Monetary policy is quite accommodative. There is a, a record number of central banks cutting rates or expanding um, alternative uh, monetary policies and so on and so forth, which again reduces the opportunity cost of holding gold. So risk and uncertainty and opportunity cost are supporting investment uh, demand. And in addition, I think that uh, one of the things that is important to understand when it comes to gold is that while a lot of investors and market participants think about gold in the context of hedging and, and risk diversification and so on. There is an additional side of gold, a dual nature of gold, also as a consumer good. Um, it's a, an integral component in electronics, all the electronics we interact with. And understanding the performance of gold requires you to understand how these two sides interact. Talk to us about the central banks. I know they've been a historically have been buyers of gold, aggressive buyers. What's their activity level now as it relates to gold? 
central banks have are uh, have been a, an integral part of the demand side of gold at now for 10 years in a row 2019 will mark the 10th consecutive year of net central bank purchases in fact uh, 2018 marked a record central banks collectively bought the most amount of gold since 1967 then uh, we are waiting for final uh, figures final data and estimates on 2019 but it seems that it will be um, you know, at par, if not, uh, you know, slightly lower, slightly higher than what we saw before. All in all, the most important thing, central banks around the world, and especially emerging markets, have recognized the, the relevance of gold in foreign reserves as a way of uh, diversify, diversifying those reserve, the reserves, but also an, as, an, as an asset that produces uh, or that contributes to safety. And th right. those are usually the, way, the words they use when, uh, when they disclose their purchases. This all makes sense. We've heard it from a lot of people. We've been hearing it from a lot of people for a lot of years. And since 2013, it's been a real rough road for gold uh, with some real declines in the price. I'm trying to square that with the logic, which would make sense that you've got, you know, uh, basically central bank easing across the board, an effort to get inflation to pick up, concerns about global growth and headwinds. So this is a sort of haven bet. All these things make sense. Why haven't we seen a bigger rally? Well, actually, I think that gold has performed quite well over the past five years. It has uh, the returns over the past five years have been comparable and if not higher than bond markets in general. And it has outperformed considerably the commodity complex. A commodity complex over that period actually have had negative returns. Gold has had positive returns. Again, what you need to understand with gold is that it's not just about fear, right? You have this dual nature, which basically means that if you do have, you do see the seller uh, in uh, in perspectives on, on on economic growth that tends to soften consumer demand and it provides a ballast at the same time when the price of gold like we saw in 2013 uh, comes down and it pulls back you do see consumer demand stepping in which again provides this ballast so understanding gold in the short term you can potentially do it only through the lens of an investment safe haven type of of, of activity but over longer periods of time you need to understand these two dynamics Juan Carlos Artigas, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate you coming in here and sharing your thoughts on gold. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.